back to our podcast, All About Salt Marshes. Today, we have a guest star, Emily Dutton. She's here all the way from New Hampshire to tell me all about salt, salt marshes and how they got their name. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, I couldn't be, couldn't be happier. Sides in the salt marsh, so. Makes it feel so good that you're here. Yeah. What's up with salt marshes? So they're in coastal systems. Um, so they'll be along the shores, um, often behind dunes, behind beaches. There are these inlet areas um, that are called estuaries. It's where the streams meet the ocean. And so it's a fresh and salt water um, environment. Uh, those areas still get influenced by the tide. So the tide will come in, it'll bring, recharge a bunch of salt water um, into the system, and then as it kind of comes out, um, it's mostly fresh water that's kind of coming back in from the, from the streams. So it's not as salty as the ocean, but it's still heavily influenced by those, those tides. Uh, and grasses. Grasses grow there. Mostly grasses. Grasses? A lot of grasses. Unexpected in a salt marsh. You would think that there would be not a lot of life happening there because it's salty. And what I know, just the layman that I am, salt kills everything. Is that accurate? Well, so these plants are specifically adapted for these salty environments. There's a number of things that are actually... Uh, preventing growth and a lot of that has to do with the anaerobic or the lack of oxygen that's in the soil um, because it's flooded so often. So these plants have to survive not only that salt that's constantly inundating, uh, being flooded a lot of the time, and the lack of oxygen. So these plants, though there isn't a ton of diversity in the area, these are like hardy, hardy plants that are able to deal with a lot of environmental factors. Um, that most plants cannot. Whoa. Well, what other animals are there? So a lot of uh, deer will be grazing in salt marshes. Uh, when I was out in the in Rhode Island, we actually saw a coyote that um, was frolicking through. A ton of birds rely on this. Um, and fish that are, it's often a nursery for the young fish that are in there. There's horseshoe crabs that are in there. There's a lot of shellfish that in New Hampshire um, oyster reefs can actually form. There's a really growing restoration project that people are working on is trying to get those oyster reefs back and established. Um, yeah, so it's just like a wildlife haven for, for a number of different species. Wow, this seems like it is just a utopia of gorgeous, lovable creatures that are in and out of this place though. So what is a salt marsh versus just a normal marsh versus just a little like a, a lagoon or a pond with some trees in it? Or like what, what is the definition of what do you need to have a salt marsh? What's the equation to make a salt marsh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the recipe to make a salt marsh I'd say is in your opinion. In my opinion, my humble opinion. Yeah. Um, you need salt, so you need salt water, like Himalayan um, pink salt, sea salt, sea salt uh, of the ocean. Fine ground or big <laughs> coarse, definitely coarse, coarse <laughs> sea salt. Okay. Um, we need um, 
tides. So we need to have a fluctuation of tides. And there's technically like two different zones that we get in a salt marsh in New England. Um, the, it's called the low marsh. <clears throat> that gets flooded twice a day, every day. Um, and then there's the high marsh. It only gets flooded like once a month. So it still does need to have tides. Um, the amount of tides will kind of decide what plants grow in the area. But you need salt, you need tides. Um, we need silt in the water. Um, so like suspended particles of silt just in that water. Um, and that is how um, marshes uh, gain elevation. So the silt will kind of bump in to all of these little um, grass you know, plants in the water, when it's flooded, it'll kind of bump into them and then settle onto the marsh surface. Mm. And very, very slowly, um, it will actually gain an elevation. Um, so it will, uh, it, the rate uh, is three millimeters a year. So it's very small. Whoa. Um, and sea level rise is closer to four. Mm. millimeters a year so we're we're outpaced so but we need that silt we need that silt in the water and then for it to um, grow up um, in New England we get uh, we get winter we get cold oh, we get winter yeah winter happens oh. um, and we get ice rafts that um, will freeze on the mud flats that are adjacent to the salt marsh and during our winter, we get uh, what what some locals call nor'easters. Mm. Um, and so during those winter storms, uh, there's a lot of wave action that happens along the coast. And those um, ice rafts will kind of come up onto the marsh surface that will kind of bang into the marsh um, throughout the winter time. No trees can be present. Um, no shrubs it's just too damaging um, interesting so that's why it's dominated by grasses um, they're perennial glass grasses um, they... any shrubs uh, would just get torn to pieces during the winter time so um, there's only one type of shrub that will grow in the marsh it's right along the edge the upland edge and it's called high tide bush it's aptly named that it is the highest point of the tide. Any tide does not go past it, um, mm. and it's mostly because of that, those ice rafts that will happen in wintertime. So anyway, um, so you need grasses. Grasses. You need that silt that ends up turning, oh, uh, and we need no oxygen. So in the soil, we have, it's very low oxygen. Um, so like turtles couldn't live there. Turtles would have a hard time. Okay. Um, I mean, in the soil, yeah. Right, because there's little oxygen. There's very little oxygen. Even though they like being in soil. Right. They wouldn't like this soil. They wouldn't like this soil. Um, so, no <laughs> back turtles. to the equation. No turtles. <laughs> so we got salt. We got tides. Tides. We got... Grasses. Grasses. Ice. Ice. That little climb? oxygen. Little oxygen. And... Only um, one bush. Only one bush. It's a shrub. It's a shrub. Uh, bush shrub. I think that those are synonyms. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to look it up. 
Um, and um, how about sunlight? Definitely a lot of sunlight. A lot of sunlight because there are no shrubs, there are no uh, trees. Yeah. They're getting constant sunlight. So these these plants are really dealing with a lot of exposure, a lot of salt, which not many plants can. Um, it's it's definitely a it's a rough rough existence for these plants. There's also some uh, sulf there's sulfides that oh. will. Um, that's that rotten egg smell that you'll get. Yeah. Yeah. So, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's uh, um, these, so these plants really have to deal with these sulfides that are, you know, basically horribly toxic to these plants. So they have to deal with that. But it is a huge um, trait of salt marshes. It's uh, something that's just, you're, you're going to have stinky peat. And uh, peat is P-E-A-T instead of P-E-T-E. -E. We're not talking about some guy named Pete who smells all the time. But peat mosses, though. Peat moss? Does that come from salt marshes? But it, com it comes from a freshwater marsh. Oh. And it's those are really found in... Canada? Ireland. Oh. Probably Canada, too. Um, but it basically just means it's an anoxic, so there's no oxygen. Um, so decomposition is really low and so you get this accumulation of organic matter mm. and that's what peat is. Mm. So peat moss, which is used heavily in gardening, um, has really high um, organic matter and has all of those nutrients and really great stuff for plants. Um, and it wasn't broken down because it's in, an, um, in a low oxygen environment. Same thing happens in a salt marsh, except we get kind of different situations because of the other components of the salts and the tides and the, all that jazz and the bacteria that colonizes there. So we get stinky peat instead of peat moss. Got it. Yeah. Got it. What, are, are there anything that are, are threatening their, uh, the salt marshes and the animals that are there and the grasses? What's happening? Yeah. So there's this thing you might have heard of, sea level rise. What? Average um, high tide lines are just getting pushed further and further inland. Um, and because of that, um, our marshes especially, but you know, a number of people have experienced this if they live along the coast, um, we're getting a lot more flooding that will mm. happen. Um, and so the grasses that... Um, that are holding these marshes together. So all the grasses that we see, that's all the above ground biomass, if you will, but below ground, all of the roots, that's what's holding the marsh together. It has this dense network of all of these roots that are just entangled and twisted together. And it's actually holding all of that sediment in place. Without those plants to hold the sediment in place, all of it will just erode away, um, which is what happens when they get flooded for too long. When there's not enough period for them to breathe, um, then the plants will die and that that marsh will get eroded away and it'll turn to a mud flat where it's just a, a slab of unvegetated uh, mud, if you will. <laughs> is anything like this or other things impacting salt marshes today? Definitely, yeah. So. There's also the problems of development. A lot of people, lots of people, really love being by the water. They want to have their home there. Mm. 
Um, I think that if they wait 20 years, wherever they are, they might have coastline. So, you know, just play the long game. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> this is a podcast about salt marshes. Get it together. Nice soapbox for residential areas. Right, right, right. Sorry, sorry. That's my that's my different podcast. Give it So, um, we really like to develop. We have made it a lot more difficult to develop in the areas, but we um, will often do uh, like mitigation um, uh, developments. So, if you develop along a a coastline. Um, as long as you can kind of restore or protect another area, then um, it's okay. Um, so we're kind of treating it like uh, changing a salt marsh in one area, but as long as you're restoring another, it's equal and okay. Cool. My main question is how are salt marshes good for humans? How do they help humankind? Salt marshes provide a number of ecosystem services for humans. Uh, huge storm surges. Um, we get a lot of wave activity and salt marshes will actually decrease that wave action. Um, it can control erosion through that dense network of those um, roots and those uh, plants that are in the salt marsh. So we get um, a decrease in erosion, um, we get an absorption of floodwaters, so when we get, you know, really um, intense either storms, rain events, it'll absorb a lot of that um, extra runoff uh, before it kind of gets into the waterways and causes flooding. Um, we also get um, filtration, so the vegetation, a lot of the animals that live in there are filter feeders too, um, so it can kind of absorb and take in some of the pollutants that we kind of input into the into the world. Uh, so sometimes fertilizer can kind of get absorbed excess but to a certain extent so um, but the we can kind of end up cleaning the waterways through salt marshes and the species that live in there. Um, there's a huge economic um, boost that we get from salt marshes from the that fisheries um, a lot of them salt marshes are nurseries for a lot of fish so if we care about fish we want to protect those salt marshes so that they can in their juvenile stage be uh, living in these systems and then growing up to be eaten by people um, <laughs> and uh, we can get you know, oyster uh, reefs and um, mussels will grow in salt marshes and so, you know, and there's also, you know, an ecotourism. Um, salt marshes are beautiful. People have actually like paid money to spend time in salt marshes. A, a lot of uh, birders especially will really love all the birds there. Right, because there's birds there. There's birds, a lot of birds right. there. I live in a city why should I care about salt marshes? Like, it's what could I do here that could affect salt marshes? They, they seem so far away. That's a great point. Um, a lot of the things that happen in our, you know, we, we kind of don't understand how um, 
actions and behaviors that happen in very separate areas can have an impact because it's such a larger scale that we can't really understand the scope. But a huge thing that is um, kind of impacting salt marshes is the is climate change, which is driven by you know the burning of fossil fuels. So, mm. which everyone is in, encountering um, that you know we drive cars to work, and if you're have a you know uh, gas using car, then that's contributing, but you know, industry is kind of the big thing that's really the problem that we need to shift away from, um, and our the way that we heat our houses. And there's a number of things that we're we're using these uh, fossil fuels that are inevitably impacting the global climate, which are impacting salt marshes. But um, uh, in cities, just in general, there's a lot of waterway pollution that can happen, which can have kind of downstream effects. Um, and those are kind of the, the main ways that someone in a city could have an impact on salt marshes. But So what's something that I could do today <laughs> to help save salt marshes? One, do they need saving? Are they cool? Are they fine by themselves? <laughs> yeah, so I'd say that salt marshes definitely need some some... Uh, intervening at this point. Uh, main reasons are that um, salt marshes can tolerate change. You know, they geologically throughout huge time scales, they do change with the changing of sea level. You know, we have had fluctuations where sea level has risen, sea level has um, decreased, and the marshes have still pers persisted. Um, however, this is happening at a really fast rate. Um, and the, the sediment needed to increase the elevation um, is just not there um, for a number of different reasons. But um, we, so the, this is just happening really quickly. Um, and we really, we like to build really close to salt marshes. And so we have roads, we have houses, we have yards um, that mean that the salt marsh can't migrate upland as the sea is increasing, which is how it would naturally um, be able to adapt. persist and adapt to the changing environment. But if it's not able to migrate upland with the sea level, um, then it, at a certain point, it will get it just gets called, swallowed it over. It gets swallowed, yeah, huh. which is called coastal squeeze. I didn't make the name. You clearly <laughs> made that name. Um, and yeah, so that those are kind of the um, main reasons why there we do need to do something. Um, but what we can do today is there's um, research that's going on um, that is trying to figure out different restoration strategies, but. The restoration strategy that I'm looking at specifically is, is called thin layer placement. Um, and basically all it means is that we're taking um, sediment uh, and putting it in a thin layer on the marsh surface. Um, the main reasons why we're doing this is to increase its elevation so that it's not getting flooded as much uh, because of sea level rise. As we said that earlier, the, the accretion or that increase in elevation from the natural sediment that happens is three millimeters a year. So it's just not gonna keep pace. Uh, if we're able to put a few centimeters 
onto that marsh surface, it'll actually decrease the amount of flooding that happens. Uh, um, it's been a pretty successful um, mitigation strategy. Uh, vegetation has shown to come back, uh, flooding has seemed to decrease, and um, the marsh seems to kind of come back to what it was uh, maybe a, a few decades ago. Um, we re don't really know how we're going to be able to mitigate things on how it was before us kind of things. We've done a lot of thing, uh, a lot of damage, but if we can kind of hold on to those marshes while sea level is continuing to rise, um, it's something that I am hoping New England will start to incorporate in its, in its uh, restoration strategies. And but a, a common you know, not person in the scientific restoration for salt marsh field. Um, it's kind of abstract, you know, the things that we would hope to do. Um, there, there are things that can help decrease our carbon footprint, which can inevitably help. Uh, eating less meat, honestly, is a, is a big thing that can, can have uh, pretty big impacts for one person. Um, that's probably the biggest thing that a person can do because realistically it's very hard to live without cars um, and if you are not in a economic bracket of being able to have an electric car um, some of these things just aren't feasible um, but being able to maybe switch your diet to um, eating less meat is is a large way that people can kind of make some changes to their day-to-day -day life uh, if you're able to rely more on public transportation, if you live in a city rather than individual cars, it's another great way. But mostly a lot of big changes are going to happen from governments. So if we can kind of vote <laughs> for the people that, you know, in your area that uh, are promoting things that you care about. So if there are people that are have really strong uh, environmental values, voting locally. Um, a lot of people don't vote um, in their town elections. Those are really, really big ways that you can have more of a say on a smaller scale. I had no idea. Wow, thank you for telling me that. I'm so glad that you, Emily Dutton, has come in today to talk about salt marshes. What is your specific interest? Why are you interested in salt marshes versus wetland marshes, um, roadside puddles, um, <laughs> Uh, Home Depot. <laughs> you can work for Home Depot. Why are you not doing that? <laughs> Those are all really great examples of places I sh could and should possibly be working. Um, I could probably make more money working at Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> um, no, that's that's a. Those are great points. Um, I think that as a. Um, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time during the summer down, uh, down the Cape with my family, and we spent a lot of time at the beach. Um, in Brewster, they have uh, miles and miles of mudflats that you can walk through during low tide, and me and my dad would spend a lot of time like digging through the, the mud looking for crabs and looking for clams and uh, seeing what we could find. Um, so I guess I have had a... A draw towards the ocean and salty environments uh, from a young age and uh, they're so rad like they 
provide so many ecosystem services just like they do so much and it's just like it's not just for us but it's like to get people on board you're like but salt marshes do such cool things and they're pretty wow neat wow this has been an exciting maybe 20 minutes podcast thank you thank you so much emily dutton for being here today before we go could you recreate a bird sound for me from a salt marsh? Sure. Uh, this is the call of a of a red winged blackbird. I've been working on this one for for a while. Um. Wow! You did wow! You should become a foley. <laughs> it's uh, it's my one greatest gift. Really, truly. Then what are you doing in salt marshes? <laughs> I just hang around. I live there. <laughs> Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is a great chance to just chat about some marshes. Some marshes. Stay tuned next week for uh, we're switching gears and we're gonna go talk to Marsha, the local dry cleaning lady at the corner of my street. Marsha will tell us about all of the beautiful chemicals that she puts into wastewater places that then end up in salt marshes. Look at that full circle. Thank you. Stay tuned for next week. Next week. <laughs>